The People's History of Kansas City podcast is supported by the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art, celebrating 30 years at the Block Party on Saturday, May 4th. Visitors can enjoy music, food trucks, exhibitions, and artist-led activities. Learn more at KemperArt.org. This is a People's History of Kansas City, a podcast from KCUR Studios. I'm Suzanne Hogan. So just east of Kansas City, Missouri's downtown, you'll find a housing development unlike any other in the city. It's called Parade Park Homes, and it was the first Black-owned housing cooperative in Kansas City. Some say it's the first Black-owned housing cooperative in the nation. Kansas City has a history of being a place where disinvestment and racist real estate and banking practices have made homeownership for people of color especially challenging. So when Parade Park was first created in the early 1960s, it had a reputation as being different from the start. It was a new innovative vision, a new type of affordable community for ownership, empowerment. The whole concept of the cooperative is everyone comes together. That's my mom holding my grandson right there at the tree. But a lot has changed since the early days of Parade Park. Uh, Parade Park, in my opinion, is to a degree a victim of its own success. It's not Parade Park that developers want, out-of-state developers want. They want this land because it's so close to downtown. And these days, the future of this historic and unique housing development is up in the air. You know, but if they can get the land uh, on the cheap. And so let's run the black folks out. We're closing on a housing cooperative like this is a little bit of a novel scenario. It's not something that happens frequently. And if we displace a neighborhood of people living in poor housing conditions, where will they go? Reporter Beck Shackleford Wanganga has been digging into this story for us. It's a breezy, overcast day in late March. Diane Charity, who's in her early 70s, is an almost lifelong Kansas City resident. She stands in front of a boarded-up, partially burned-down townhome where her daughter used to live. The siding has melted, and it looks like it's dripping off the side of the home. The townhome is one of many crumbling residences in the Parade Park Homes neighborhood. The troubled housing complex east of downtown Kansas City is one of the nation's first Black-owned housing cooperatives, the first Black-owned housing co-op in Kansas City. And it's a place that evokes a lot of family memories for Diane. My daughter used to sit out here and eat watermelon. Oh, <laughs> you know, that's so cute. She points to the front porch of her daughter's unit and shows me where watermelon plants used to grow from the seeds that her daughter would spit out onto her front lawn. Is this sad to you to see where your daughter lived? Yeah, yeah. looking like that. And because mother lived like right there. Yeah. And we would barbecue on the back porch and, you know, all those kinds of things that you do. Of 510 units, only about half are occupied. But Diane Charity is able to look past Parade Park's current state, where old neighbors are long gone and current residents cope with leaking roofs, black mold, and shingles falling off of their buildings. Instead, she sees decades of bittersweet memories. Her two kids growing up, family gatherings, kind neighbors... And something else. Pride. For Diane and many of the other current or former residents, Parade Park is more than decades of neglect. More than just another aging property destined for redevelopment and luxury apartments. 
It's a black community built on empowerment and ownership. And though it's endangered today, it stands out as a symbol of what is possible. But to understand how Parade Park came to be is to understand the complicated story of post-war development in America. This idea, called urban renewal, is an idea that carries different meanings for different people. It was a powerful force in shaping our city, and we're still grappling with it today. Parade Park is at the center of that controversy. I'm Michael Frisch, I'm Associate Professor of Urban Planning and Design, Department Chair, Architecture, Urban Planning and Design, here at UMKC. Michael Frisch studies this subject a lot. Post-World War II and in the 1950s and 60s, as the nation was shaking off the Great Depression in World War II, developers in Kansas City and other places were working on plans that would completely change the face of their cities. Essentially, planners and developers would go into, quote, blighted areas in the urban core, demolish whatever stood there, and replace it with interstates, industrial buildings, houses or apartments, and so much more. As nice as a fresh, squeaky clean city with all of the latest infrastructure sounds, there were a lot of problems with urban renewal. For one, those blighted areas that got torn down were often lower-income communities whose residents were mostly black or brown. The problem with urban renewal is that a slum is in the eye of the beholder. Kansas City got national acclaim for its ambitious urban renewal projects. But whether or not these projects were actually beneficial is up for debate. Michael Frisch hands me a picture of some houses that stood in an old neighborhood called Attics. This photo that I found looks, you know, it's like, wow, that looks like a slum. And so it's a photo that shows the alley behind houses and shows trash and dilapidation, maybe even houses that don't have plumbing. And so, I mean, that's kind of blight, right? It's the definition of blight. It's like housing that is not meeting modern standards, um, trash <laughs> everywhere, uh, ugliness, um, Again, the, the picture shows the rears of buildings and the wood, again, it's in black and white, but it looks like the wood hasn't been kept. Um, and then when we look at the brand new Parade Park homes, they're beautiful, they're townhouses, they're in white. This black and white photo showed the backside of homes, the alleyways where people put their trash. It looks run down and like it's falling apart. At this time, these houses likely didn't have plumbing or electricity. Kansas City officials deemed the area blighted in the 1950s. It was a poor, mostly black neighborhood, but Attucks was also an established community. A little background on Attucks. It was named after Crispus Attucks, an African-American sailor who was believed to have escaped slavery. He was the first person killed in the Boston Massacre during the American Revolution, and he was later memorialized as a martyr for American independence. In the Attic's neighborhood in Kansas City, there was also the Crispus Attic School. When the city deemed the Attic's neighborhood blighted in the 50s, it wiped it off the map to create something new. More than 600 families were displaced by urban renewal. And they weren't the only ones. A study by the University of Richmond called Renewing Inequity found that between 1950 and 1966, more than 3,000 families were displaced by urban renewal in Kansas City, Missouri and Kansas City, Kansas combined. 
People of color who were in the minority in both cities made up more than half of the displaced households. Can we really remake the city? And if we displace a neighborhood of people living in poor housing conditions, where will they go? So that's, these are some of the big problems of urban renewal. The other thing is if you, if you raise the slum area, where are you going to put it in its place? Professor Michael Frisch raises some essential questions. A major component of urban renewal which was taking hold of poor and minority communities was that the U.S. was also constructing major highways and interstates, roadways that take up a lot of space. And often, the urban core areas that were clear to make way for these roadways were Black neighborhoods. Today in Kansas City, roadways like I-435 and U.S. Highway 71, also known as Bruce R. Watkins Drive, cut through the hearts of several prominent and historic Black communities. People were pushed from their homes and businesses to build these, and others felt like the interstate ran right through their front yards. Corner stores and churches that used to be a short bike ride or walk away were now walled off by highways that couldn't be safely crossed on foot or by bike. The highways chopped property values too, paving the way for disinvestment. People abandoned houses in city neighborhoods, leaving crumbling structures even as people searched, as they still do, for decent and affordable places to live. These intercity interstates were built largely to serve suburban, affluent, mostly white communities by connecting them to downtown. According to a 2021 article by Reuters, when preparing for highway construction, Kansas City planners intentionally rerouted highways away from white communities to avoid displacing them and etched roadways through black, low-income communities instead. Hold on, because I'm going to put this on speaker because the old lady can hear better that way. Okay? Okay. All right. Here goes. Now. At 93 years old, Mamie Hughes is well-known in Kansas City for her activism and community leadership. She's been a civil rights advocate and organizer throughout a lot of historic moments involving urban renewal in Kansas City's history. She's perhaps most notably known for when she served as ombudsman for Bruce R. Watkins Drive, a section of Highway 71, a controversial roadway that displaced many people on Kansas City's east side. Mamie Hughes fought for a highway system that would serve both drivers and people who lived near it. She insisted on safety features, landscaping, fair compensation for homeowners who needed to relocate, and on bridges so that both pedestrians and cars could cross the highway. At any rate, you know, I began to be aware that there has to be a way for people who are affected to have some kind of a a say. Mamie Hughes' life work has been about promoting equality and education, and she was able to mitigate some of the harm done to neighborhoods during the construction of that roadway. She actually first moved to Kansas City in 1949 and taught at Crispus Attic School in 1951 in the Attic's neighborhood, just for a short time. She's seen firsthand the ripple effects of many pivotal and contentious moments in Kansas City's history. As cityscapes were changing rapidly to accommodate cars, white flight began. 
Feeling hopeful after World War II and enabled by VA loans for veterans, white people were flocking to suburban oases like Overland Park or Prairie Village. Racist policies and a lack of wealth or access to loans kept black residents and people of color from moving away from the urban core. The attic site near downtown Kansas City that we talked about earlier was spared the disruption of roadway construction. But when it was destroyed, it completely disrupted the lives of more than 600 families who were displaced. What had been an established Black neighborhood bore the brunt of this concept of urban renewal. But while parts of attics were designated for industrial use, most of the land was used for a more welcome purpose, townhomes. Instead of a highway, this move to destroy one neighborhood was the birth of Parade Park Homes. The name came from a park right next door, where the Kansas City Urban Youth Academy, some baseball fields owned by the Royals, sits today. Sometimes just called the Parade, the park had long been a gathering place for concerts, sports activities, and, of course, parades. In the early 1900s, National Guard units would practice marching band acts and do drills there. Professor Frisch says, at least at the time, Parade Park Homes was kind of an uncharacteristically ethical urban renewal project. In many ways, this is a progressive development in what they were trying for. And they were trying to build ownership. It was um, and targeted to a community that actually did not have the same level of access to good housing choices. And it's building in kind of community control. After the roughly 54 acres of the attic site were cleared, it sat empty for a while. Frisch says this was a common practice in urban renewal projects. Properties were often raised before they had plans for the land. A 1961 article from the Kansas City Star reports that A.J. Harmon, executive director of the Kansas City Redevelopment and Housing Authorities, ran into a problem with the attic site. There weren't any developers that could build apartments with a monthly rent suitable for low to moderate income residents. Affordable housing was a necessity because city developers like Harmon had raised hundreds of acres of residential land, forcing people to relocate. And a new federal housing act said that if cities wanted to qualify for federal subsidies to tear down blighted areas, they had to prove they could provide replacement housing for the families they displaced. Kansas City had tried in other situations to remedy some of the displacement caused by urban renewal by building public housing projects like the Wayne Minor Court housing development, a high-rise just a few blocks north of 18th and Vine. While affordable public housing might sound like a great idea, it was actually highly controversial. Kevin Gotham, a professor of sociology at Tulane University in New Orleans, has written a lot about the history of urban renewal, public housing, and downtown revitalization in Kansas City, Missouri. In places of concentrated poverty, it's not just an individual that's living it that's poor. It's everybody around you that's living in poverty. Gotham explains that people in suburbs or middle-class neighborhoods didn't want public housing projects in their communities. Ultimately, the not-in-my-backyard residents got their way. Public housing was erected in the heart of Kansas City, which led to a strong concentration of low-income people in one place. Gotham says this is a problem for a lot of reasons. So therefore, not only does everybody around you live in poverty and face the kind of trauma of poverty, of of inadequate access to quality health care, 
uh, living in food deserts where there's just not much opportunity for access to high quality uh, food. Um, you're more likely to live in a neighborhood that's played by by violent crime. According to Gotham, American public housing was intended to be temporary shelter for working class people. Instead, it became a place for the poorest of poor, oftentimes single mothers. Impoverished people got stuck in a vicious cycle and couldn't get out. Gotham says lots of people who lived in public housing lived a sort of transitory lifestyle, where they would move from project to project in search of better jobs and cheaper rent. This destabilized neighborhoods, making it harder for residents to form attachments and build a community. Parade Park Homes, though, in the 1960s, was on a different track. The late A.J. Harmon, Kansas City's Housing and Redevelopment Director, was on the hunt for a private developer for the attic site. He was at an urban renewal conference when he happened to run into an old colleague who was the general manager for Reynolds Metal Company. And this old friend happened to be a big promoter of aluminum. He wanted to prove that aluminum was a suitable and affordable solution for construction purposes. So they came up with an idea. On August 11, 1961, a groundbreaking ceremony for Parade Park Homes took place at 17th Street and Woodland Avenue. 214 units were built to start with. And yes, the frames were constructed from aluminum. Roughly a year later, the first residents moved into bright white, modern townhomes, complete with a small yard and off-street parking. To keep it affordable, a federal loan was secured below the market interest rate, and Parade Park Homes was built under the condition that it would be a housing cooperative. Okay, so what is a housing co-op, you might be asking? The housing cooperative members uh, are a self-governing body. Fred Gibbs is president of the National Association of Housing Cooperatives. He says residential co-ops were created to provide an affordable route to homeownership. See, in a housing co-op, people don't purchase an apartment outright. Instead, they purchase a share of the cooperative. The share itself is tied to an occupancy agreement or proprietary lease, which gives the resident the right to live in a certain unit. Unlike the usual landlord-tenant agreement, because co-op residents own a share of their community, they have a say in what happens to it. They set policy, uh, they establish their own rules, they set their own budgets, uh, and they decide based on the expenses, uh, the necessary expenses of that housing cooperative, how much per month they're going to pay. And that monthly payment is uh, what the rental world calls rent, but in the cooperative world it's called carrying charges. Parade Park Homes had one, two, and three-bedroom townhome options. Monthly carrying charges for a two-bedroom in the 60s were advertised at $66, which would be about $620 today. These rates were affordable for low- to moderate-income residents and even put home ownership or something close to it, in reach for Black families in the 18th and Vine District. Gibbs says his association believes residential cooperatives are the most economic form of housing. We say that because the persons that buy housing co- uh, housing cooperative memberships, they don't have to qualify for a mortgage as you would in a single-family home. There is a lower bar for them to uh, achieve this home ownership uh, than would be in a situation where they'd have to go uh, and seek out a mortgage and go through all of the all of the things that are necessary when it comes to 
uh, getting a mortgage. Parade Park in its early days had strict rules set by the co-op's board that affected more than just people's financial situations. When Archie Williams applied for a townhome in 1975, he and his now wife, Ivira, were not married. The board told the young couple that in order to move in, they would need to get married first. Although it took a few months to get approved, Archie said he was impressed by Parade Park's high standards. We met at a loud coffee shop to chat. So while it's uh, inconvenient right now, but it's cool, you know, it shows you have some standards and values that... So that was my introduction to it. We did move in in May, and that's been 47 years ago. Archie also says when he moved in nearly 50 years ago, he didn't know what a housing co-op really was. But he soon found out. What I found out about a a, uh, cooperative is that it's um, it's democratic, self-governing, The whole concept of a cooperative is everyone comes together. Soon after he got settled at Parade Park, Archie began to appreciate having a say in how his community functioned. He developed a passion for the autonomy the cooperative offered him, and later he became a board member. Archie also loved living in the 18th and Vine District with its rich African-American history. He spends a lot of time researching local black history, and he says Parade Park was the perfect place to raise his son and daughter. It was like a cocoon, you know, uh, during the, especially during the uh, 80s, when my kids were becoming adolescents. He says neighbors kept an eye on each other's kids. Because residents could control what was allowed and what wasn't, Parade Park had strict policies against gang involvement. If a neighborhood kid got involved with a gang, Archie says the neighbors would tell the parents and try to get the child out of that situation. If that didn't work or the kid wouldn't cut ties, the family would be kicked out of Parade Park. Diane Charity also raised two kids, a boy and a girl, in Parade Park. Diane was a single mom, and she said the community really rallied around her and helped her raise her children. During a driving tour of Parade Park, Diane points out a stretch of pavement that runs through the center of the neighborhood. She calls it the blacktop. Okay, now why'd you call it the blacktop? Uh, Because uh, right here where it's kind of gray between those trees is a designated area only for children's bikes and and, you know, big wheels and things like that. And so you, we couldn't actually drive on the blacktop, but the kids could play. That's really cute. Yeah, on the blacktop. <laughs> Diane Charity moved to Parade Park to join her mother and sister in the late 70s. As we drive around, she points out units where she and her family used to live. She said at one point, several of her relatives lived there, and they would get together for barbecues and meals. So you all, you moved here just to be close to each other? Yeah, yeah. Just to be close to each other, and uh, and it w- it really worked because the kids could walk. They went to attics, and uh, yeah, you're gonna make a right, uh, and could walk to to my mother's, you oh. know, uh, after school, and then of course walk home. Diane says, unlike a lot of other low-income communities in Kansas City during the '70s and '80s, Parade Park felt safe. The feeling of pride and empowerment that came with owning a share there helped people build a solid community. And this is why many of Parade Park's early residents still live there decades later.
You listen to a People's History of Kansas City for a fresh take on local history. We want to honor these stories and we take the reporting very seriously. And sometimes we just need to chill. Want to hang? Let's party! Join us at our annual benefit, Radioactive, on June 14th. NPR's All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro will make a special appearance. And boy, it's going to be bumping. You got to be there. Please come support our work. Ticket information is available at kcur.org radioactive. But Parade Park wasn't perfect. Diane Charity said slowly over time, the townhome started to age and management was shoddy. And while self-governance has a lot of pluses, running a place with a volunteer board isn't easy. Disagreements popped up and a lot of residents started to feel left out of important decisions. Like this one experience Diane had after living there for 15 years. I got a letter in the mail that uh, accused me of having a dog. I didn't have a dog. That's bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> and I needed to get rid of my dog or I needed to register the dog and pay money. Yeah. I said, but I don't have a dog. So we went back. I said, you know, I'm going to find out what this damn board is about. The incident prompted Diane to run for a position on the board. She was elected and served on the board for more than a decade. Diane says although many members came onto the board without any prior experience governing a cooperative, current board members worked hard to orient new members. They attended annual conferences put on by the National Association of Housing Cooperatives. And Diane even led workshops. So I ran for the board and stayed on the board for 15 years. But I I learned so much. And not just uh, (laughs) about how even back then in the 80s, they were trying to buy us out. Diane says that as Parade Park evolved through the years and new families moved in, it felt like not everyone understood what a co-op actually was. Some people moved there for what they thought was cheap rent, and they didn't realize they were supposed to have a say in how Parade Park was governed. She says when residents forfeited their voice in governance, the property became susceptible to being preyed on by developers who had other plans for it. There were also a lot of disagreements on how to spend Parade Park Homes money and what issues to focus on. By the late 90s and early 2000s, residents and former board members alleged that money was being misused. Members of the current board declined to be interviewed for this story. The lack of accountability and bickering on the board didn't sit right with Diane, and she says she was constantly calling out her fellow board members. In 2006, she fell behind on her monthly carrying charges. She says she was only behind by one month, but although the board had always worked with people in the past, they told her she would need to pay all she owed or leave. Diane couldn't afford to pay all she owed in a lump sum. So in 2006, after living at Parade Park for 30 years, she left and moved into another apartment complex just a few blocks away. She says she felt like she was being pushed out. Diane still has a lot of friends there and wanted to go back. She claims she didn't know until recently, when she tried to apply to live at Parade Park again, that the board had actually filed formal eviction charges against her. They claim she owed them $5,000. I said, I never owed them. Matter of fact, they owe me $4,786, which was my equity amount. I said, how could I owe them $5,000? But they had this attorney uh, to go through it, and it's still on the books. No one on the board was able to verify Diane Charity's contention. 
But in addition to disputes like the ones Diane had with the board, Parade Park fell behind when it came to management and updates. The last renovation Parade Park had was in the 90s, and many units slid into disrepair. Weathered, drab siding is dirty and stained. The landscaping is unkempt. Current resident Archie Williams says it seems like to him that on top of some of the infighting with the board, that Parade Park just couldn't keep up with growing and changing needs. With time, everything changes. And if you don't adjust to the changes, then you you have other results. Uh, Parade Park, in my opinion, is to a degree a victim of its own success. Archie says although Parade Park remained affordable, the board never raised carrying charges enough to be on par with the current economy and keep up with maintenance. Also, he says over time, things have changed. Fewer people needed to go the route of a housing cooperative to achieve ownership. So, as the years went by, Parade Park homes went from having a waiting list to half of its units being vacant. Which brings us to present day, where things are looking pretty grim at Parade Park. The aging townhomes scored some of the worst possible scores at U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development inspections in 2019 and 2022. The board was given a deadline, which has passed, to sign a deal for repairs with a developer. Otherwise, the property could go into foreclosure, and there's a possibility Parade Park will lose its status as a cooperative. Once you kind of get up close, you can see pretty clearly that there are some units that are falling apart just from the exterior. Steve Vakra is one of my colleagues at KCUR. He did some digging on this, and during a visit to Parade Park, he found that most residents are living in almost uninhabitable conditions. And if you go into them or if you talk to people who live there, they talk about, you know, they need to move buckets around to catch water that comes in. Um, You know, a few have talked about suspecting that there could be some mold issues, things like that. Steve told me that there are currently two development options on the table for Parade Park. One by the community builders of Kansas City, which would mean a large-scale redevelopment and Parade Park would lose its cooperative status. The other option by the National Association of Housing Cooperatives would mean Parade Park would get to keep its co-op status. But only if about half of the townhomes would be rehabilitated. The rest of the property would likely be sold to a developer. Steve says a spokesperson told him that this plan isn't fully baked yet. He says residents feel like Parade Park is too far gone for rehabilitation, and that the second plan, NAHC's plan where they get to keep co-op status, would only prolong the inevitable takeover of outside developers. Residents also feel like they aren't being heard, Steve says he talked to residents who took an informal vote on the proposals, and the majority of residents voted in favor of the first plan, which would mean losing their historic cooperative status. You know, and the question I had for all the residents I talked to is, you know, this could all result in higher caring charges, and, you know, are you willing to pay that? Are you able to pay that? And they said yes, in general. They said that, you know, that they need to that they want to live in conditions that are more uh, uh, habitable, that are, you know, basic human dignity is kind of how it was described. You know, like we deserve better than, and we're willing to pay. If it results in a better place for me to live, it's a better place for my neighbor to live. 
if HUD gets to the point where they need to foreclose on Parade Park, the situation could get even messier. So what's a little unique about this situation is, is my understanding is that HUD isn't exactly sure what they're going to do um, because foreclosing on a housing cooperative like this is a little bit of a novel scenario. It's not something that happens frequently. Vakrat says if Parade Park is foreclosed on, that could lead to the displacement of families in an already scarce affordable housing market, which sounds a lot like what happened with addicts all those years ago in the 1950s. All of these issues, affordable housing and the longevity of Parade Park, don't just stop with this place. Diane Charity, who has a long, complicated history with Parade Park, is also a founding organizer for Casey Tenants, a citywide tenant union that advocates for safe, accessible, and affordable housing. Driving around Parade Park, she sees parallels about how this community and the whole city is changing and is leaving some people out. Turn left onto Euclid Avenue, then use the left lane to take the US-71 North Yeah, Ramp. I guess it's having us get on 71. Uh, knowing that that uh, it could be better, and it used to be better. Yeah. Uh, but living in Kansas City is so cost prohibitive these days. While I'm driving around the neighborhood with Diane, she thumbs through photographs on her phone, old newspaper clippings, and letters from her time at Parade Park, all held together in a big manila envelope. We both marvel at how old some of the stuff is. This is the exact same spot that in front <laughs> of that, that your tree. Son? That's my grandson. Oh. And uh, I've got others I've been uh, collecting. Oh, there. That's my mom holding my grandson oh. right there at the tree. That's so precious. Yeah, he's 25 years old now. Wow. During the tour, Diane points out to where she and some of her former neighbors used to live. Vinyl pieces of soffit that line the eaves are falling down, and many of the units are boarded up. We end our tour at the one-bedroom units where Diane's daughter used to live. They've been burned almost completely to the ground. Parade Park's management company and the fire department say the fire was set by a homeless person, but Diane wonders if something more sinister happened. She notes that the one-bedroom units were vacant at the time. She says in her view, management is allowing Parade Park to fall into disrepair to make it easier for a developer to swoop in. It's not the property, of course. It's not Parade Park that developers want, out-of-state developers want. They want this land because it's so close to downtown. And they plan, and you know, with them wanting to build a stadium and all those kinds of things, they're just setting this up to do market rate, either market rate housing or a Walmart, or that's what I heard, you know, those kinds of things so that, you know, but if they can get the land uh, on the cheap. And so let's run the black folks out. Although Diane doesn't live at Parade Park anymore, you can tell her heart still lives there. But that's true for a lot of places in Kansas City. Diane has a big heart. But others think Parade Park's time as an innovative, affordable community, the first Black-owned housing cooperative in the city, and this rare ethical example of urban renewal has run its course. Archie, who still lives at Parade Park, says in his view, it might be time to let go of cooperative status to make way for better living conditions. And 
that's crushing. It's really hurtful. If you've been independent all of this time, but you find yourself in this situation too. Rather you're gonna exist anymore, uh, you have to change forms. Hopefully, you know, we'll get a nonprofit developer. Archie says he wants the developer to be African-American to maintain Parade Park's historic roots in the 18th and Vine District. He says he loses sleep worrying that other types of redevelopment could open the door to gentrification and price him out of this area he loves so much. One day last spring, residents and board members met to pray over Parade Park's future. They pay that grant, God, that they'll pay it with encouragement in the name of Jesus. Then we pray, Father, for the board. God, give them wisdom. It's a, it's a mess, but it's a mess that you can handle. And so, God, as they come to you, laying it all out. Regardless of what happens in the coming pivotal months for this historic place, Parade Park stands as a rare example of an urban renewal project that actually benefited lower-income Black people the ones who typically got displaced by highway construction or other fixtures. Today, as Kansas Cityans search, sometimes desperately, for an affordable place to live where they can control their own destinies, Parade Park reminds us of what is possible and why we need to keep looking for solutions. We thank you, God. Thank Amen. You A People's History of Kansas City is a production from KCUR Studios. Reporter Beck Shackelford-Wanganga brought us this story. She reported and produced this episode with editing by Barb Shelley, me, Suzanne Hogan, and Mackenzie Martin. Our intern, Paris Norvell, did the sound design and mixed this episode. Music this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. And coming up in three weeks on the podcast... I mean, he was the exception to the, to the rule, which was generally that even if you were free... You generally probably lived in poverty. From enslaved to being one of the richest men in Jackson County, an entrepreneur's journey. How his wealth and lasting legacy were almost lost. Until then, find us at kcur.org slash people's history and we're on Twitter at phkcpod for more stories about the people who created Kansas City and the region. I'm Suzanne Hogan. Take care and thanks for listening.